Hello, and welcome to Got Science. I'm Andrew Rosenberg, director of the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. We're doing things a little differently this episode, sandwiched as we are now between massive and destructive storms. At the time we recorded this podcast, Houston was just beginning to recover from Hurricane Harvey, and the Caribbean was being battered by Hurricane Irma. At UCS, we often say that African Americans, Latinos, and people living in low-income communities are affected first and worst by climate change and environmental disasters. In Texas, climate change contributed to days of rain flooding homes and stranding thousands of people, in many cases those with the fewest resources to evacuate before flooding set in or to rebuild their lives after the storm passed and people living near petrochemical facilities were already impacted by many years of exposure to toxic chemicals, even on good days. Now, many of these facilities have flooded, and so have several extremely polluted sites full of toxic contaminants located near people's homes. As of this recording, no one knows how safe the air and water are, or even the soil in neighborhoods where they're located. It is already beyond unjust that the people living in these neighborhoods are not protected from pollution. Harvey has compounded this injustice. UCS science is on the side of the people in Houston and around the country. Protections for communities affected first and worst must be grounded in science. That's why we've been working with environmental justice organizations on the ground in Texas, Delaware, New Jersey, Florida, and wherever we can lend our expertise to help make a difference. Our mission is to connect science and scientists to community organizations working for justice and equity. We hope greater access to technical information can help amplify their voices and their efforts to address longstanding issues. For example, in Houston last year, working with partners in a grassroots organization called Tejas, we reported on chemical facilities that produce chronic pollution and are also at risk of accidents. Today, those same facilities in the neighborhoods where Tejas works are at ground zero for toxic contamination following Harvey, as communities ask for government to step in and monitor and enforce the laws. The challenges to low-income communities facing environmental threats are not as prominent in the news, but they need immediate attention. Grassroots organizations need our support, like our partners in Houston, Tejas, which stands for Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services. To help grassroots organizations, check out the hashtag Tejas Harvey Fund on Twitter. Thank you, and now back to our regular episode. That was Dr. Andrew Rosenberg, director of the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Welcome to the Got Science podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. This week, we're talking to Mustafa Ali, one of the founders of the Office of Environmental Justice at the Environmental Protection Agency. In the aftermath of the natural disasters of the past couple of weeks, we've seen how some communities are able to bounce back quicker than others. In Houston, Texas, Many people living in low-income neighborhoods, or neighborhoods that are predominantly Black and Latino, are having a harder time returning after Harvey. The refineries and chemical facilities built near their homes have unleashed a soup of toxic chemicals, and it's questionable whether it's safe for folks to drink the water or even breathe the air. If you're not familiar with Houston, 
You might be asking yourself why someone would buy a house near a refinery or a chemical plant anyway. In most cases, it's the other way around. With the help of racist zoning laws, these facilities were built around neighborhoods where people were already living. This is just one example of a particular kind of inequity known as environmental racism. Environmental racism pretty much guarantees that environmental stressors, like climate change, are going to hit poor people, black and brown people, undocumented people, anybody with less political power, first and worst. These communities had a strong ally in the federal government in Mustafa Ali, a founding member of the EPA's Office of Environmental Justice. Mr. Ali worked with the EPA for nearly 25 years to help people come together to fight against air, water, and industrial pollution in their cities and towns. Under President Trump, the EPA's proposed budget would eliminate the Office of Environmental Justice, and Mr. Ali has moved on to the nonprofit advocacy organization, the Hip Hop Caucus, where he's senior vice president of climate, environmental justice, and community revitalization. Mr. Ali took some time to chat with our correspondent, Damian Jones, about his work at the EPA, how science and scientists can help advance the cause of environmental justice, and what's next with the Hip Hop Caucus. Damian, take it away. Thanks, Colleen. Today we're joined by Mr. Mustafa Santiago Ali from the Hip Hop Caucus. How are you, sir? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Thank you for having me. Good, good. Thank you for joining us on the Got Science podcast. I want to get right into it. Uh, we know your extensive background and the great things you've done over the past 30 years in and out of the environmental justice space. But I think a lot of folks are wondering, how did you begin your work in the environmental justice arena? Yeah, I, I was, um, you know, I was definitely very blessed. And, and as my mother would often and my grandmother would often say, was divinely inspired. I come out of a family uh, very focused on faith. Uh, I was real blessed to come up as a student uh, focused on social justice issues and civil rights issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, I happened to be at the right place at the right time. Always had a connection to the environment and nature and those types of things. Um, and then linking that up with civil rights and, and social justice issues, I uh, was blessed that uh, an incredible person by the name of uh, Dr. Clarice Gaylord, mm -hmm. um, I was actually doing an internship. And she and a person by the name of Dr. Warren Banks at that time was uh, sharing with me about a new issue that folks were starting to focus on and felt that it was something that uh, I might be interested in. Uh, had the opportunity to go to Louisiana, to New Orleans, okay. and meet an incredible person by the name of Dr. Beverly Wright. Oh man, we all know her so very well. Yes, Dr. Wright is incredible, incredible champion, an icon, really. Went to a conference uh, at her school and had the chance to meet some of the folks who were coming out of Cancer Alley and a number of other places across the Gulf. Um, and made a real connection there. And, and I should say also, um, I actually snuck into the first People of Color Summit back in 1991. Okay. Okay. Uh, and luckily, when you're a kid, you can get away with that kind of stuff because no one's really paying any attention. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, between those two uh, events uh, and meeting many of the uh, landmark uh, leaders, designers, creators of the environmental equity, environmental justice, environmental racism movement, I was hooked. And I knew that God had put me in a place uh, on an issue that I could dedicate my life to mm -hmm. uh, because it was focusing on communities that look like me, communities where I come from, experiences, 
um, and who were focused on helping to make positive change. That's what folks are really asking for when we talk about environmental justice. Sometimes folks get it twisted mm-hmm. and they think it's something else. It's very, very simple. People want to live in healthy, safe places, right, right. places where, where they can be productive, uh, where their kids can grow up. Um, and that was the beauty of being in that moment um, early, early on. And uh having an opportunity over the years to see the development design, the successes, the struggles of environmental, what we call now call environmental justice. Can you make the connection for us between science and environmental justice? A lot of folk uh, don't see where there is a connection. Can you kind of make it plain uh, for some of our listeners? Well, sure, sure, definitely. I mean, science and environmental justice go hand in hand. Um, Because without being able to prove the impacts that are going on inside of communities, the impacts that are going on inside of people's bodies, Mm -hmm. uh, and science plays a huge role in being able to validate uh, those challenges that folks have been sharing that are going on inside of their communities. Science is the backbone, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, and working in the Environmental Protection Agency for a number of years, there were two things that drove the work that happened there. Um, one of them was the law. The other one was science. And the two are, you know, connected and they help to create sort of the foundation for policy uh, to be able to move forward. So when we talk about what's happening inside of communities with environmental injustices, science plays a critical role. But I also always remind folks, since over the past couple of decades, I've seen evolution. I've also seen the challenges that exist in space, that scientists um, in many instances need to make sure that they're also connecting with the communities that they may be evaluating or working on those different types of things. What does that particularly mean? Well, you know, it can have different things. One, we need to be supporting community-based participatory research um, and finding connections um, with other scientists also to help to make sure that that data that's being collected, you know, is ground truth, but also is QAQC, all those various types of things. But also, one of the gaps that I see, and it's not just in science, it's also in policy, Mm -hmm. it's also in a number of the other areas that also play a role in helping these communities be able to move forward, is that you have to be connected in some form or fashion. You have to be able to spend some time. You have to be able to actually understand uh, some of the additional impacts that may be happening that may not necessarily be being captured by the data that you're pulling together so that you get a fuller picture. So, what, 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 Mustafa, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. You talk about being more connected. Yeah. Now, for a scientist listening right now, mm-hmm. they're saying, how do I do that? How do I, how do I step away from the lab? How do I step away from the computer, um, the office, or what have you? What does that look like yeah. for an everyday scientist? So, many scientists, yes, have been trained to you know handle those procedures and processes inside of a lab or inside of an office, whatever the situation might be. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the comfort zone. So just a few months ago, we had the the March for Science. Mm -hmm. So scientists were never trained to be activists or advocates. They were never trained to be out, you know, sort of pushing forward for making sure that science is is valued. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so I take that as an example of how people are expanding their comfort zone. I never ask anyone to move outside of their comfort zone. That's Mm -hmm. not the place where most folks are going to operate, but expanding it. Expand it, make it a little larger. It's just making it larger, yeah. You're bringing in new skill sets. As a scientist, you probably are always looking for a way to garner new information, Mm -hmm. new skills to make you more effective at your job. The same thing applies with communities. Mm -hmm. 
for you to be able to expand means that you are spending time in those communities or you are connecting with those organizations or networks who are inside of those communities and having those conversations that help you to garner additional information to make you stronger, mm-hmm. to make you more effective at, at what you're doing. I think all of us are always looking for an opportunity to be innovative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that by garnering these new skill sets, by building new partnerships, it places you on the forefront of the issues that you're working on because you now have additional data. It's almost like, you know, many of our Native American brothers and sisters use traditional environmental knowledge. So by sort of connecting that with some of the other types of knowledge bases that you may have, it makes you stronger, makes you better, makes you wiser, um, and gives you an opportunity to see maybe a situation with a new set of lenses, if you will. Now, you were a founding member of the Office of Environmental Justice at the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, You spent 24 years there, and you're a founding member during the... Uh, Bush administration. Mm-hmm. Which which Bush? Uh, that was the first Bush. Okay. Yes. 1990... 1992. Two, okay. Yes. So the Office of Environmental Equity, which became the Office of Environmental Justice, actually came out of a set of recommendations uh, from folks who are part of the Michigan Working Group and others, uh, leaders from across the country. And they actually started their work in the late 80s. Um, and as they came together, they began to identify a set of recommendations, uh, and they began to engage with William Riley, who was the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency at that time, and began to share uh, some of these impacts that were happening inside of their communities across the country and on tribal lands. And out of that set of recommendations has come many of the most successful elements of environmental justice that the federal family has been able to move forward on. So I'd like to make sure people understand that these innovative ideas, um, yeah, the feds played a little bit of a role in it, but the foundation for it actually came from stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And and one of those was the creation of the Office of Environmental Equity. Um, And out of that, um, that recommendation that there needed to be a central point inside of the federal government uh, so that folks would have intersection uh, into that bureaucracy, a place Uh, where folks would actually honor what was happening inside of communities and not only the impacts, but also the opportunities that those communities have been looking for. Uh, And that was the Office of Environmental Equity. And out of those recommendations also came the Environmental Justice Small Grants Program, which has helped, I believe, last count that I remember, over 1,500 communities across the country, about $24 million, $25 million. Extremely important because it allows folks to begin to move forward. It gives them a small amount of seed money. number of the other really successful grant programs have come out of that as well. Uh, the collaborative problem solving model. Um, you know, there were a number of grant programs in the early days, the state tribal environmental justice grant program wow. that helped to get uh, states moving on environmental justice um, because they play a critical role in tribes as well, tribal governments. Um, but a couple of other things real quickly. The National Environmental Justice Advisory Council also came out of that set of recommendations from stakeholders. And that was really important also because it began to bring a number of different types of stakeholders together. Sometimes when people think about environmental justice, they only think that the only voice in that process are communities. And Mm -hmm. communities have a critical voice because that's where the impacts are happening. But the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council 
actually began to bring business and industry in as a part of a federal advisory committee along with community groups, uh, with tribal representation, with state and local governments, um, uh, and academia, and, and a few other um, also groups. So a broad coalition. A broad of folk. coalition, yes. You know, if, if, if folk follow you on Twitter, what, what's your Twitter? Uh, it's at uh, EJN Action. And so if folk follow you, they see that often. At least once a week, uh, you are in on college campuses, you are at conferences, you are talking to our young people mm-hmm. um, to help uh, inform them, engage them and, and give them, let them know how much power yep. they have in their own hands. Talk about the power that young people uh, have. I see you lightening yeah. up as, yeah. I, as we talk about yeah. power. Yeah, because that, that, that's what this is all about. I mean, power translates into resources. It, it translates into change. It translates into innovation. All those things are a part of this next generation. And and when I talk about the next generation, I talk about them as leaders now, Mm -hmm. not leaders in the future. Now, we all garner new skills and and techniques and those types of things. But it is amazing to see the work that young folks are doing across the country, Uh, and especially in our minority-serving institutions. I mean, I can't say enough about the incredible innovation that's happening in that space, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's around solar or wind. Um, you know, I've met with students who are talking about advanced manufacturing. I've talked with students who, you know, are thinking about app development, um, talking about students who are thinking about how to move and change investment portfolios to be beneficial, uh, not only to our country, but across the world. Um, there are so many innovative things that young people are doing around GIS mapping, you know, so many different things. Um, and, and it's just incredible. And, and, and policy also, you know, having really in-depth conversations about how do we make policy more inclusive? Mm-hmm. How do we make sure that equity is a part of it? I just had a conversation uh, about a week and a half ago now with uh, a group of students around infrastructure. And we're about to have this big infrastructure bill that's going to move uh, across our country. But if we don't have equity a part of that, then there are going to be communities who will be further displaced. Mm-hmm. There'll be uh, even deeper lack of investment in those communities if we don't have equity a part of that and thinking critically beforehand about what needs to happen and a lack of wealth building opportunities as well. These are the conversations that folks who are 20, who are 25, and in rare instances, even folks who are 16, 17, who are having these conversations about what that needs to look like. And that's the beauty of our country. We are actually in a great position when it comes to having so many innovative young people who are thinking critically about science. And someone had a conversation with me and it just blew me away. Uh, We were having a conversation about genetics and pollution and what they felt were some of the challenges and possibilities also in that space. Um, and I was just sitting there and I know a little bit about it, uh, but they were taking me deep and um, just blown away. I was blown away, but I was also just ecstatic. This was a person who was 17 years old who was getting ready to go off to college and was also uh, already thinking about these issues in a very deep uh, and impactful way. And can you imagine what this young lady's work is going to look like five or 10 years down the road? Um, And that, you know, that's the power of youth um, and and the power of when we give people the space to be creative Mm -hmm. and innovative and be supportive. Um, So that's why I enjoy the work that I do around the country, whether it's in speaking or sitting down uh, or having roundtables or in community events. 
I've learned more from Mr. Johnson on his back porch yeah. and Mrs. Ramirez in her kitchen yeah. um, than, you know, than many instances when I was sitting in other more formal spaces, if you will, because they were giving me real talk. And, and that's the beauty uh, of also linking an intergenerational aspect. When you can have someone like Mr. Johnson move into a space and have a conversation with someone who's 16 or 17, then you have a continuum of decades of knowledge and information, but you also now have innovation also uh, from those younger folks bringing in you know, new things that, that they're learning and developing. Staying along the ethic of real talk, you were blessed to be at the Environmental Protection Agency for 24 years mm-hmm. and did a lot of great work. Mm-hmm. Now enter a new administration, an administration that leads many of us to believe that there isn't a real concern for everyday people, for our most vulnerable communities. In, in a time like that, we need some of our strongest leaders in very pivotal places mm-hmm. to lift their voice and to help. And Mustafa Ali being at the Environmental Protection Agency at a time like this is so important. Mm-hmm. But you wrote a very eloquent and powerful letter, mm-hmm. and you resigned mm-hmm. from the Environmental Protection Agency. Mustafa, talk to us and tell us why you resigned at a time like that. Yeah, that was uh, that was tough. That was really tough. I mean, I prayed mm-hmm. like crazy about the decision. Talked to mentors. Talked to family. It is funny because since I come out of a very faith-based family, uh, in my prayers, I would ask the you know I would ask God. I'd say, well, if this happens, then I'll leave. Okay. And, and one thing would happen, and I'll talk about that. Uh, and then you know how it is. Anytime we're talking to God, well, then we're like, well, if, if this happens. We're leveraging. Yeah. And, and it got to a point where God was like, well, you know what? If you think you're getting a burning bush, it's not going to happen. Uh, so, so, you know, there, was, there were a couple of things, Damien, that was in that space. You know, when you've been doing this work and you've been seeing folks struggle to be able to help to make their lives and their communities' lives, their children's lives better, um, there's a certain level of commitment that's in that space. And when I saw them start to make some proposals around, you know, eliminating some of the, you know, statutes and talk around legislation, uh, and, you know, and regulations, all kinds of various things that folks had worked for decades to try not just to get in place, but to expand and enhance because they weren't protective enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew what the impacts would be inside of communities, you know, that more folks were going to get sick. Uh, more kids were going to get sick. And unfortunately, some folks would lose their lives in that process. And, and then when I saw some of the budget types of eliminations that they were talking about, I was like, well, how could this possibly make any sense? Because this is not going to help for folks to be more protected. Mm-hmm. It's actually dismantling and deconstructing basic protections that are necessary uh, for people to live. And I knew I couldn't be a part of that. Um, I did not in a million years expect to get as much attention as I did. A reporter told me about a couple of months ago that over a million people read my letter. Wow. Um, And the important thing in the letter was that I wanted to share with the new administration the challenges that still exist inside of these communities, the opportunities that exist as well, and the work that they could be doing if they chose to, because each new administration that comes in has the opportunity to be a champion for communities, especially our most vulnerable communities. And I work for both Republican and Democratic administrations, and I never saw an administration that had such a strong disregard for the lives 
for the environment and public health of these communities. So I said, I can't be a part of it. So it sounds like it really just came down to your moral compass, correct? Yes, you have to know what you stand for. And yes, it's super important to have committed folks inside. But sometimes you have to be that one who's willing to stand up. And I think that that's, you know, the the foundation that our country is built on is on people who, uh, when they see injustice, are willing to stand up um, and, and call it what it is, but also to be able to think critically about how do we move forward. Have you received any pushback from folk since you resigned? <laughs> I've been blessed. Um, uh, there have been those moments, you know, where you have special folks uh, who just haven't evolved yet, who have negative to say, but I would say 90, 95% of the engagements I've received have been positive and supportive. You know, you also have those interesting moments uh, and I'll, I'll talk about two of them real, real quick. Mm-hmm. You know, the first one was one time when uh, I was invited to speak at a rally outside of the White House. And as folks know, I'm traveling all over the country, you know, I have security clearances, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, you go to the airport, you never had no problems before. And now it takes five hours to get onto a flight. Um, so, you know, people send little messages of, you know, maybe you need to back off a little bit. But here's the flip side of that. A couple months ago, I was in Texas and I was uh, at the airport standing in line and a TSA agent walks up to me, you know, and says, are you Mustafa? And I was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> and I was like, well, yes, I am. And said, well, can you follow me? Huh? Sure, I'll follow you. And takes me over, and there were two other TSA agents who were over there, and, and they stuck their hand out. One of them did and said, hey, I just want to thank you for your service. Wow. That, you know, those are those moments that help you to realize that as long as you're focused on doing the right thing, as long as you're focused on trying the best that you can to help our country to get stronger and to get better, as long as you're trying to help the voices of those uh, who sometimes are marginalized or unheard or forgotten. Mm-hmm. And when you come from a rural background, you remember what it's like to be forgotten. You know what it's like not to get a lot of you know, media attention on issues. So I remember the positives that exist and how thankful I am to be in a country where I'm allowed, uh, along with many, many, many other folks, to be able to share uh, through our voice um, you know, some of the things that, that we can get better at. We'll be back with the second half of our interview in a moment. You're listening to the Got Science podcast, brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. You can find us at gotsciencepodcast.org or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. So underneath all of this greatness, Hmm. Underneath all of this brilliance, underneath all of this knowledge, you're just I'm a country a, a boy. Country boy. I'm a country boy. From where? I'm from West Virginia, and very proud of that. And the great sort of values and experiences that come with being a country boy. Growing up, you know, running up and down the hills, right, and, right. and fishing and hunting. And you know, I think a lot of it goes back to whatever your set of values were when you're being raised and coming up. I remember in my little teeny tiny community. You know, when folks would go hunting or would go fishing, we would bring stuff back to the elders in the community who couldn't get out. You know, if somebody was in trouble in the community, you know, something happened to somebody's house, people coming together. I guess that's just a part of uh, who I am. And, you know, when you come from country, you know, when you shake somebody's hand and you look them in the eye, that's your word. And that's why 
I, I bring those lessons to the work that I did in Washington. You know, if you're an administrator or if you're a secretary of a department and you go out and you have that conversation with Mrs. Ramirez or Mr. Johnson or Mr. O'Leary uh, and you look them in the eye and you shake their hand mm-hmm. um, and, and you take what they shared with you back to Washington and you don't do anything with it, then that means you weren't ever authentic. And I truly believe that if we had more senior officials actually out sitting down, spending time with folks, um, policy would look completely different. Just having a beer with folks. Having, just having a beer or having a cranberry juice right. <laughs> or whatever it is that you drink, um, it changes you. When you actually touch people, it changes you. Um, and there's a level of expectation in that space. And I think that's why sometimes people keep some distance between themselves and the folks that they are supposed to you know, be working for. Because how do you go back to Washington and move forward on a policy that is going to end up hurting folks? How do you uh, talk about eliminating a lead program or lead programs mm-hmm. at EPA and HUD, as an example, mm-hmm. and then go back to Flint, Michigan? You can't do it. You're now the senior vice president at a great, great, great organization, the Hip Hop Caucus. Talk about some of the work that you're doing over there and, and what is the focus and purpose of the Hip Hop Caucus. Yeah, well, you know, that, that again is just God doing his thing um, or her thing, <laughs> you know, because uh, being at the Hip Hop Caucus with Reverend Yearwood and the rest of the family is just incredible. Just doing amazing work. When I left, I could have went, you know, anywhere, uh, anywhere, really. Yeah. Very fortunate to to have lots of different possibilities and offers. And um, the Hip Hop Caucus just felt right because I wanted to go to a place where I didn't have to convince anybody that this work is important. I wanted to go to a place where innovation was just a part of the fabric. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go to a place where culture um, was honored and respected. Um, and all those things were a part of the hip hop caucus and so many more. And I wanted to go to a place where young people and, and others uh, were doing work that was outside of the box, if you will. And the hip hop caucus is doing incredible things like the Respect My Vote campaign, mm-hmm. you know, where artists and entertainers and other types of cultural influencers are coming together and sharing with folks the power that exists inside of their vote. Um, and why? Voting is so important and how it translates into positives or negatives if you don't. Um, and, you know, the Hip Hop Caucus has registered over 600,000 people Incredible. to vote. So, you know, there, there's power inside of that for folks to make the best decisions for them and their communities, of course. Um, so when I see folks, you know, like Vic Mensa or Chance the Rapper now or Jay-Z or a whole bunch of other folks, who are getting engaged in this space and sharing how this can be a positive uh, for communities. That's powerful. And then, you know, People's Climate Music is also a part of what folks are doing uh, at the Hip Hop Caucus. We've got our offices both in uh, Washington, D.C., but also in L.A. So in L.A., you know, we have studios that are there. Uh, And in 2014, the caucus put out the Home album. And that's important. The Home album has actually healed our Mother Earth. Wow. So you had folks like Common and Neo and El Varner and Antonique Smith and a multitude of other artists who were utilizing that beautiful gift that God had given them, their voices, their lyrics, um, to be able to share with folks, you know, what's going on, both the the impacts and, and the changes 
And when you hear some of these folks flow, it just, and you know, the beauty of music is music is a connector. Yes, it is. You know, and when folks hear hip hop, they think, oh, well, that's just, you know, a small segment. Hip hop is actually global. Um, and hip hop is not about black people or white people or Asian or Latino uh, or Native American or indigenous folks. It's about all of those. And it's not about straight or gay. You know, I just read an article the other day that hip hop is now overtaking rock and roll yeah. as, as the most prevalent uh, musical genre in yes. this country. Yes. And, you know, hip hop comes out of struggle. Um, yes. It's the beauty of a people. Uh, it's also, you know, the challenges that exist. Um, and it touches everyone. I had a lady call in one day. She was said, uh, I'm 76. She's like, so I'm probably not a part of your demographic, but I really appreciate what you guys are doing. And I said, well, do you like hip hop? She said, yes. I said, well, you're part of the family. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> she laughed and we both laughed. And uh, the beauty of the Hip Hop Caucus, we have over 31 leadership committees across the country great, continue great. to grow. Um, so folks, no matter where you are, can get plugged in. Uh, we have the divestment and reinvestment campaign that's going on that's moving those portfolios out of fossil fuels and into more beneficial types of uh, investment bases. We take it a step further and say we actually should be reinvesting in communities also. So, you know, we're working in, in that space as well. And we have the Revitalizing Vulnerable Communities Program, which will be launching here at the end of the summer, which is real, real focused uh, on getting the resources uh, to communities, uh, the technical expertise, uh, helping to strengthen and build collaborative partnerships so that the vision of communities can become a reality. We often say moving our most vulnerable communities from surviving to thriving. Um, so that and and so many other things. The caucus is just, it's just an incredible space. We had folks come in the other day from 24 countries, all kinds of different folks, poets, writers, rappers, singers, uh, coming together. You mentioned a moment ago the incredible work the caucus, Hip Hop Caucus, has done around voting. You've mm -hmm. registered over 600,000 Americans, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. But many may wonder, is there a connection between science and voting? Well, there definitely is a connection. Our vote is connected to everything that we do. And most people don't realize that, you know, sometimes we think, well, you know, we go vote uh, one day every four years or hopefully you're voting more often than that in both state and local and midterm elections. But your vote translates into where resources are going to go. So if you are someone who's in the science field or who cares about science, your vote plays a critical role. We have some examples today. So we currently have an administration who does not necessarily value science. Absolutely. Um, and your vote was connected to that uh, and the choices that are being made in that space. Your vote is connected to where resources are going to different types of entities, those federal agencies that are focused on science. And now there is a shrinking and rolling back of budgets in that space and a number of other things that are happening um, that's connected to that. So your vote has power and your vote also moves people to do the right things that's supportive of that or not. What advice do you offer to young scientists mm -hmm. who are now moving into this new space, into this new society? Um, our world is taking a new form, especially uh, in the scientific realm, and now there's an administration that is attacking science at such a intense level. Yeah. 
what advice would you give to young scientists entering into this space well, in, in 2017? Yeah, there's a number of them. I mean, I got to give your organization a shout out because it's extremely important, like with the Union of Concerned Scientists, to have entities, to have bodies like that in place so that you have those individuals around you to help to, you know, guide, um, share those different types of things. Um, if you're a newer person who is moving into this space, uh, you know, internships and fellowships are critical. And that's one of the challenges I worry about is that with shrinking budgets and a lack of focus on this issue, that it creates less opportunity for folks. So we have to address that with other organizations and entities to create those opportunities. The other thing that I would say, which is a part of my mantra, is that for new scientists who are coming in, get those additional experiences. Spend time, invest time, be a part of organizations that are on the ground, whether in a formal or informal way, um, which is going to be extremely important. Stay connected with other types of institutions or minority-serving institutions as well in an authentic way. And there's an exchange and interchange of information that exists in that space. Um, there, there are so many different things because now information is so much more readily available um, for folks. Um, so, you know, be thinking and working with, so I'm starting to work with folks, you know, like in Silicon Valley and other places okay. um, about new innovation and technology. So being connected to that, but also remembering that as technology is being developed and you're becoming a part of that, that you still have to make sure that it's connected to everyday folks who may not have access to that. Uh, and how you are going to help bridge that, if you will, will be important as well. Um, so there are lots of different things that are going to be available to new scientists moving into the space. Surrounding yourself with lots of different types of mentors. And not mentors who maybe just look like you, come from where you come from, but broadening that base out. It's going to be so important. And, and that's why, you know, for those organizations and entities that already exist... It's so important to make sure that they are diverse, because if you are not diverse, then you are actually operating from a 20th century paradigm instead of a 21st century paradigm. You're actually putting yourself at a disadvantage. What will happen, though, Mustafa, if scientific organizations, if environmental organizations don't move quickly enough to diversify their perspective, diversify their staff, diversify mm -hmm. their boards, diversify um the way they operate, mm -hmm. what will happen? They lose. They lose because as the country begins to, as it already is beginning to change and diversify, they will no longer be relevant in that conversation. You know, our organizations I work with, you know, all kinds of folks, business and industry, grassroots organizations, green organizations, so forth and so on. When I sit down and have conversations with folks, uh, you know, I can tell who's who's really innovative, mm -hmm. who is really positioning themselves for the future um, by a, that being a part of that conversation about how they are thinking more inclusively um, about preparing, uh, making sure that there's equity a part of their process, making sure that they are attracting uh, new voices into their process. And they're also thinking about how do we connect on the outside, if you will. Uh, with other types of organizations, communities, and stakeholders. When I hear that, I know this is some organization or entity that if I blink and 10 years have passed, that they're going to be stronger. Um, and for those who don't, 
Unfortunately, I also know what's probably going to end up happening to their organization as, you know, 10 years goes by as well. Checking the box versus authenticity. Folks say that you should bake diversity and equity into the work that you do from the beginning. Yep. Opposed to bringing those types of projects and thoughts in on the back end. Mm -hmm. Talk about the importance of baking that into what you do. Yeah. Well, you know, I've seen a lot uh, over the past couple of decades, and uh, you can tell when it's authentic. So, you know, what do your boards look like? Who's on your boards? Um, Because your boards are helping to play a big role in in driving um, sort of the direction that you're going. Your senior management, what Mm -hmm. does that senior management look like? Who's on it? Who's in positions of power? Um, so that when their voices share, they can at least be a part of the overall strategy development, if you will, and where resources are going to go. What does your middle management look like? Mm-hmm. You know, you'll have a lot of great staff folks who want to do the right thing, but if you don't have the right middle managers who want to do the right thing, then you're going to run into it because they're the ones that really where the rubber hits the road, if you will. The other thing, and folks hear me talk a lot about power. As you're thinking about moving forward, are you inviting stakeholders in and giving up some power um, for them to play a strong role in the development uh, of what of your programs or activities are going to be? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where it gets really interesting. Yes. Unfortunately, when we're, you know, like in graduate school and business school or whatever, sometimes people will teach you that the pie is a certain size and there are only so many slices that can be in the pie. And that is unfortunately the model that many of us think about instead of thinking about, well, how do I expand this pie? How do I increase opportunity in this space? Uh, And that is those organizations that are going to be the real winners moving forward. How can our supporters and our listeners, folk listening right now, mm-hmm. how can they help you in the Hip Hop Caucus? What can they do? Well, there's lots of different things you could do. You can become a member of the Hip Hop Caucus, which is always fantastic. How can they do that? What's the you, website? You can go to www.hiphopcaucus.org um, and become a member. Uh, we love to have you. Um, and uh, there's some incredible work that's happening. The other thing that you can do is to make sure that you are reaching out. Uh, to organizations uh, inside of your communities and and spend some time, do some work. You know, the beauty of your organization is that there are some great minds that are there, which could be a huge resource for communities as they're trying to figure out, you know, some of the challenges that are going on inside of their communities Um, or with some of the students who would love to have mentors, Mm -hmm. you know, with the experience um, that many of your members do. Or, or to work to make sure that you are also diversifying your body so those folks can be, you know, making some connections with minority-serving institutions and other institutions as well. There is a myriad of things um, that folks can do that will yield really positive results both today and tomorrow. Mustafa Santiago Ali, Vice President at the Hip Hop Caucus. Thank you for joining us on the God Science Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Damien. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science Podcast. Special thanks to Mustafa Ali. Our correspondent was Damien Jones. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Got Science, go to gotsciencepodcast.org. 
You can also find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And please, share us far and wide. Thanks. See you next time.